Amen. Well, thank you so much, Johnny, for leading us. Good morning, Haynes Creek. It is good to be with you today. My name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. If it is your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are excited that you're here worshiping with us, checking things out, and uh, we would love a chance just to reach out and thank you so much for your visit. So if you do me a huge favor before you go home today, if you wouldn't mind stopping by our welcome table right out here back into the hallway as you go back out here at the gym, uh, we have a free gift that we'd love to put in your hands today just as a way to express our gratitude. And then also, if we, you wouldn't mind, uh, we have some welcome cards right there on the table if you don't mind filling that out. This just gives me a chance to reach out and say thank you so much for your visit. So if you could do me that favor. I would really appreciate that. And then we are we are in week three of our current sermon series called Good News, where we are we are looking at God's message to the world. And, and we're just surrounded in our lives by so much bad news, right? It seems like every news story that comes out, it's like, oh, there's even worse things going on than I realize. There's just more bad news. Things are bad. There's just evil and brokenness and sadness just spread all across our world. But when we come to Scripture... When we come to God's word, his message is one of good news. So that's what we've been looking at these last couple of weeks. We're going to continue that today. So God's message to the world starts at the very beginning. It starts in creation where we're told that God is the creator of everything and everyone. And it says that he creates all of mankind, all people. He creates in his image, which means that we are created to reflect his character and nature and goodness to the world and that he designed us to dwell in relationship with him. And this is exactly how it was in the beginning. We look at the beginning of scripture, Genesis 1 and 2. We see the, the first people God created, Adam and Eve, living in absolute paradise and perfection in the garden. And they have this perfect relationship with God. And, and we see, unfortunately, that, that things don't stay that way. And this is what we looked at last week. Then unfortunately, they don't, they don't stay that way because Adam and Eve, they, they were given one command, right? We talked about this last week. They, they were given one command. You could have everything except for the fruit of this one tree. And that one command was given to remind them that they live under the authority of God and that they look to God for all things. They don't, they don't look for themselves. They don't look in the rest of the world. They, they find everything they could ever want in God alone. That one command was meant to remind them of that. But then we see in Genesis chapter 3 that along comes Satan disguised as a snake. And he, he tries to get Adam and Eve to not believe that. He tries to get them to doubt in God's authority, to doubt in God's goodness, that God is somehow withholding from them. And they choose to believe the snake. They choose to believe Satan over God and his word and his promise. And with that decision, sin enters the world. And sin enters the world and, and it just corrupts everything and everyone. And now, instead of being uh, in the image of God, now we are a broken image of God. That we have, we have rejected his authority, we have rejected his goodness, and we, we've chased our own ways. And the Bible tells us that, that because of that, because of those actions, because of those decisions, that we are sinners. We are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. Because of our sin and our rejection of God, now we stand condemned before our holy and perfect creator. Now, thankfully, that's not where the message ends, right? Thankfully, that, that's not how things end. And praise be to God, what his message tells us is that he's got a plan to fix all of that. He's got a plan to fix all of this mess that sin has got us in. 
And thankfully, unlike some of our plans, God's plans always work out. I don't know if you guys have had this where, where you, you try to do something, you set out a plan, and it just doesn't work. Anybody have had that experience happen probably multiple times? If you're like me, it happens on a regular basis. It happened this week. So uh, my cousin, one of my cousins, he, he lives outside of Nashville, and he has this cabin. And, and he told us about it, and, and it's a new cabin. He, he had it built, and it's, it's really nice. And uh, he said, hey, family can come anytime you want. Anytime it's open and available, family can come, and you can just stay for free. I was like, oh, man, that, that's awesome. Praise God for that. That's great. So uh, my, my wife and kids, my wife's a teacher, and they're, they're out of school part of this week. So it's like, you know, a winter break in February with President's Day, all that good stuff. So they're, they're out of school Thursday, Friday, and then they're out of school tomorrow as well. So we're like, okay, let's, let's just take a part of this break, and we'll go stay for free basically at, at a cabin a couple hours away. So this is, the cabin is in Tracy City, Tennessee. If you've heard of it, that's a miracle because there's, there's like 12 people that live there, I think, and there's nothing. There is nothing in Tracy City, Tennessee. It's in between Nashville and Chattanooga. But anyways, we, we set out. We're like, okay, we're going to go. We're going to leave right after school on Wednesday. We're going we're gonna to drive up there. It's like, you know, three, three and a half hours away. So we do that thinking that we're going to have this nice, restful couple of days up there in the mountains, and that's not at all what happens. So we get there. It's already, it's late, and it's already kind of raining. So we get there late, and, uh, it, you know, the, the time difference, so they're in the central time, we're in the eastern. So it's, it's like 9 o'clock central time. It's 10 o'clock for my kids, and they're wide awake, but, you know, they're a little tired. They're a little cranky because, again, it's like three hours past their bedtime. And try explaining how the time zones work to a six- and seven-year-old. It was impossible. They, they have no idea what I was talking about when I was trying to explain it. But anyways, we get there, and and he's like, okay, hey, there's a lockbox, and you put in this code in the lockbox, and it opens up, and, and you get the key. So I go, and I find the lockbox. There's nowhere to put a code in. There's no numbers. There's no nothing. And I'm like, well, maybe something opens. I'm like trying to mess with it. And look, I, I'm not the smartest person out there, so maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just, it's just user error. But I cannot figure this thing out. I'll blame it on me just being tired. But I couldn't figure it out, so I'm calling him. He's not answering. I'm like telling Kendra, like, I don't... I guess we're just going to sleep in the car tonight. I don't know what to tell you. Like, this is not going well already. He's like, no, no, there, you just got to, there's this part that you pull open. Well, it turns out that was jammed, and I had to, like, pry it open. So I finally got that. We finally got the key. We finally get in there. And then we're thinking, again, we're going to have this nice weekend, nice couple of days uh, up there in the mountains. And, and the, the next day, we're, we're going on a little hike, and then it just it starts to downpour on us, which I thought was kind of fun. My kids were like, this is not fun, Dad. We're soaking wet. I was like, you're fine. Relax. So that happened, and then it rained all night, and then it turned into snow in the morning. So it was kind of cool. It was kind of snowing a little bit on Friday morning. But again, we're just, and this cabin is not very big. It's, you know, from, like from here to there. That's, that's the size of the cabin. It's me and my wife and my three kids in this tiny little cabin and it's just high ceilings everything was echoing nobody was sleeping like it was just rough and then our kids like saw the fire pit that my cousin had built and they're like oh can we have a fire dad I was like oh yeah we'll do a fire well of course it rained all Thursday night so Friday morning when they're like hey let's do a fire I'm like yeah, this ain't gonna work but they didn't like that answer so I tried to start a fire with soaking wet logs and nothing to help beyond that so and it just wasn't working and finally they gave up and, and my wife looked she's like should we just go home and I was like yes we should go home that's exactly what we should do so we we pack everything up we stay there like 24 hours at most and we we drive back home Friday night so it did not at all go according to plan so thankfully God's plans are not like that when God sets a plan in motion he always delivers and we can trust that and 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 all the way back even in the moment of, of sin and rejection and sin entering the world and corrupting it God has a plan and remember, we were created to be his image. We were created to dwell with him. God does not like the separation that our sin creates between us and him. He doesn't like that. He wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. 
And from Genesis 3 on through the rest of Scripture, it's all about how God gathers his people together and dwells with them and restores what was broken all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And we see this glimpse this glimpse of promise, even in the midst of sin. So when we looked at Genesis chapter 3 last week, we saw when sin entered the world, God lists out all these consequences, right? He's, he's cursing the snake and Satan, and there's consequences for Adam and Eve, and there's just, just a bunch of bad stuff happening. But there's this, there's this couple little lines in there where there is this glimmer of hope and promise and a plan of God. I want to look at that. I want to start there. So today, today's going to be a little different Typically, we, we try to center on one passage and just kind of dig deep into that one section of Scripture. Today, we're going to kind of be a little bit all over. It's going to be a little bit more theological in nature today, but we're going to start back in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start back there. I want to read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So Genesis chapter 3, very beginning of your Bible, and I want to read verse 15. And again, this is in the middle of God listing out the consequences for sin, And he says this, speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan, he says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's the woman's offspring, he will strike your head or crush your head is another way to translate that. And you will strike his heel. So even in the midst of sin, and it seems like the snake, it seems like Satan has won the day, right? Like he's gotten God's first creation. He's gotten his his first people to reject him and turn away. And even in the middle of that, God's like, no, this ain't the end. You're going to meet, you're going to see the end and I'm going to crush your head. Like that's God's promise here. In this moment, he is going to provide a way. He's going to work out a plan to crush the snake, to crush Satan, to crush and defeat and win the victory over sin. So we see this glimmer of hope here. God has a plan, and his plan is one of salvation. It's one of of bringing his people back to him. It's one of restoring what was broken in Genesis chapter 3, of bringing his people back to dwelling with him, back to relationship with him, back to living in perfection with him. That's God's plan. And look, what we need to, just before we move on, I just want to point this out. This is not, God's plan here is not a result of him being surprised by what happened with Adam and Eve. God is not, you know, some overqualified EMT that arrives on the scene when sin broke into the world and goes, oh, that's, ooh, that's not good. I did not, you know, I thought things were going to go differently there. Did not see that coming. But don't worry, guys, I'm going to fix this. Like, that's not what happens. What we're told from Scripture is God plans salvation from before the foundations of the world. Now, how all that works with sin and God allowing sin and evil and brokenness and salvation, like, how all that works, you've got to find somebody way smarter than me to answer that. And Christians have been debating that for thousands of years, okay? So we're not going to find an easy answer there. But I think it's important for us to know that God did not arrive on the scene in Genesis chapter 3 and was surprised by what happened. He is somehow sovereignly working all things together, even the things that we see as broken, he's working together to fix, and he's got a plan for it, and that's what we need to take away from Genesis chapter 3. Things are broken, things are a mess, but God's got us. So let's talk about how God works out his salvation. We see, again, this is not just a God leaves his people alone, and then until Jesus arrives, oh, now now I'm going to get to work. No, we see God working out his plan 
throughout all of scripture, pointing ahead to this moment when Jesus would come in, in all of Scripture. So we see this play. We, we mentioned last week that if we were to continue reading in Genesis, we'd see that sin just, just multiplies, right? Like sin breaks into the world and it just goes wild to the point in Genesis chapter 6 where God looks at the world that he created, this good, this perfect world, and is like, man, I got to start over. Okay, this is so bad. I'm starting over. And he does. He floods the entire world and he starts over with Noah and his family. And he gives them the same promise that he gave Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, spread over the earth. Follow me and my commands and my ways and I will lead you and guide you and protect. Like he gives them all the same promises. And things start out great. And then they go bad again. And then they go bad again. And, and sin continues to multiply. But God continues to work out his plan. And he comes to Genesis chapter 12 with a guy named Abram. And he comes to Abram, this guy who had, had no knowledge of who God was. And he comes to Abram and he says, Abram, I'm going to do something new with you. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to build a new nation out of you and your family. And this is what he tells Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise to Abram. He's going to start a new family, a new nation out of Abram and his wife. All Abram has to do is trust this God that he's never heard of, has never worshipped or has never believed in and go to some land that he has no idea where it is. And he does. Y'all, that, that's another sermon for another day. That's crazy, though. Let's just time out and just recognize how crazy that is, that Abraham trusts God. The amount of faith that he had in that moment is just is wild to me. So he trusts God, and he leaves his family, and he goes to have this new nation built. And there's just one problem. They don't have any kids. They've got no kids, and at this point, they're around 75 years old, and God says, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Okay, sure, God. Sounds, sounds great. Sounds great. Well, God does that, right? Like, God does that. He, he has to wait 25 years. So at, at almost the age of 100, this is where God delivers on his promise, and he brings this promised child, Isaac, into the world. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and God promises to continue his plan through Jacob. Through Jacob. And, and, and then Jacob has 12 sons, right? And those 12 sons would eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And in this moment where, where Jacob and his family, they have 12 sons, well, there's this crazy famine that happens. This is at the end of Genesis. It's a crazy famine that's just worldwide. And the only place that has food is Egypt because God brought Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, to Egypt. And he rose to a place of power and provided for them to save and store up grain to prepare for this family. God just worked all of this out. And eventually Jacob and his family and this new nation that God's building settle in Egypt. And that's where they grow into a big nation. Now again, there's just one more problem. Now that there's this big nation of Israelites living in the land of Egypt, leave Egypt then enslaves God's people. So the Israelites now find themselves, yes, God, you've delivered on your promise to build us into a nation, except we're now in this foreign land where we're slaves to the Egyptians. And they're crying out to God, and God hears their cries and comes to the rescue. And he uses this guy, Moses, right? If you're familiar at all with this story, he goes to Pharaoh, who's ruling over Egypt, and says, hey, God said to let my people go. And he's like, yeah, sure. 
Sounds good. No, not doing that, right? Like, I'm not doing that at all. So God brings the ten plagues, right? And there's this, this moment at the tenth plague, the, the, the darkest plague, the, the, the most horrible plague that, that we see out of the ten, where God sends an angel of death to take the firstborn of all the Egyptian families. And this is how he's going to deliver his people. And there's this, there's this moment where he tells the Israelites, hey, if you want the angel to pass over your house, here's what you do. You take a lamb, you kill the lamb, and you spread the blood across the doorpost. And what that angel's going to do, that angel's going to see the blood. It's going to know that that lamb died in the place of your firstborn, and it's going to pass over your family. That's exactly what happens. So they do this, and that, that's what institutes the Passover meal. And, and in that moment, in that 10th plague, Pharaoh finally lets the people go. And, and God brings them through the wilderness, brings them across the Red Sea, right? He brings them finally into the promised land, right? Like they're finally released from slavery. They're finally in the promised land. Like things are going to be awesome, right? Now there's like this, this restored and renewed Garden of Eden where they're going to dwell with, with, with God. And they're going to be his people, and they're going to follow him in obedience, right? Like that, that's awesome. That's how it's going to happen. No. Sin continues to spread. And we see throughout the Old Testament, there is this pattern of God's people forgetting about him, rejecting him, and chasing after their own sin in their own ways. And yet, at the same time, God does not abandon them. God does not turn his back on them. God continues to preserve and protect and lead and guide his people. Right? He sends them the law so that they can have these boundaries of what it looks like to live for God. He sends them the sacrificial system so that they can have their sins temporarily taken care of. Right? Remember, sin brings death. Sin requires death. That's the payment for sin. So God created the system. Instead of you being responsible for your sins, an animal is going to die in your place. A goat, a sheep, a bull, whatever it is, those animals are going to die in your place to temporarily atone for your sin, to temporarily provide a covering for your sin. So God provides that. God, God provides prophets to call and warn God's people like, hey, stop following those, those other gods. Stop following the ways of this world. Come back to God. And God gives this promise, this continual promise of a coming Savior, right? This, this language of a Messiah, of a rescuer that's going to come and, and fully defeat our enemy, fully uh, provide salvation and deliverance for us. God, God echoes this all throughout our Bibles, all throughout our Old Testament. This is the message of our Old Testament. There's this pattern of sin and rejection of God's people, and then a continual deliverance and promise of salvation from God. And then we come to the New Testament, when God brings a new son into the world, a new offspring and this time, it, it, it's God himself. It's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, born into the world through the Virgin Mary. And this is, this is what's said of Jesus when he is born. Matthew 1.21 says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus comes to save us, to rescue us from our sins. This is why he's here. And so Jesus is born into the world and, and he lives a perfect life. Remember like we talked about last week, what's God's standard? God's standard is not that we try hard. God's standard is not that, that we're, we're better than most other people, right? God's standard is not that we just, we, we try to do more good than bad. That's not God's standard. God's standard is perfection. 
And Jesus meets that. Jesus lives the perfect life that we never could. He never gives in to sin. He never gives in to temptation. He never believes the lies of Satan and that evil and wicked serpent of old. He never does that. He lives the perfect life we never could. And then, and then Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to the cross and he becomes the sacrifice for our sins. Remember, sin requires death. That's the payment. Jesus takes that on. He dies on the cross. But again, that's, that's not the end of the story because three days later, Jesus comes out of the tomb alive. Jesus rises from the dead, defeating the consequences and the effects of sin, defeating the snake, crushing his head, just like what was promised in Genesis chapter three. So it's through Jesus that God takes care of our sin. It's through Jesus that God provides salvation. And just like we read last week, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if we believe in Jesus, we'll be saved. We'll be saved. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about how God does that. How does God save us? How does God provide salvation through Jesus Christ? Well, there's three ways I want to give you today. Three ways. So if you're taking notes, the first way, first way Jesus brings salvation to us is Jesus saves us through his death. Jesus saves us through his death. Jesus dies, he goes to the cross for us and for our sins. He saves us through his death. This is what 1 Corinthians 15.3 says. Paul's writing here, he says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ dies for our sins. He dies for our sins. And I want to point out three ways that, that what he does for us through his death. And look, there's, there's a lot. We could spend hours talking about all that Christ does through his death. I want to give you three, three things that, that Christ's death teaches us about salvation. One, Christ died out of love for us. Christ died out of love for us. Look, it's, it's important that we, we start with that. The cross, Jesus' death, is an act of love. It's an act of love for us. It's God's love for us that brings him to the cross. And again, remember, God created us to dwell in relationship with him. That's what he desires. That's what he wants. And the reason he wants us is out of, out of love for us. He loves us. So it's his way of bringing us back to him. This is what John 3.16 says, 3.16 and 17. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why did Jesus come? It's because he loves us. Why did God send him? It's because he loves us. It's because he wants to be with us. He loves us. Romans 5, 8 says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, let's just think about that for, for just a minute. Just a minute. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still rejecting God, telling him, I don't want anything to do with you, God, while we were doing everything to show God, I don't want your love, 
God loves us anyways and dies for us. Y'all, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's how much our God loves us. That even though we reject him and turned our backs on him, he loves us so much that he went to the cross. And look, this, this is important for us. It's important for us to remember that, that God does not love us because Christ died for us. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. It starts with God's love. Everything comes as a result of God's love for us. So Jesus dies out of an act of love. Another point about Jesus' death here, Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 3. We're going to hang out here for a few minutes in this passage and reference it a couple of times here. So Romans chapter 3. We mentioned uh, verses 19 and 20 last week where where, uh, Paul makes it clear that we stand condemned before God, that we are all held accountable before God for our sins. And because of our sins, uh, that, that place that we stand before God is one of condemnation. We are judged guilty for our sins. So let, let's pick up in verse 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. It says, can we go back to to verse 24, Chris? Verse 24, there we go. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So that we're justified, we're going to spend all next week talking about justification because that is a big idea. It's really important for us to understand what that means. But essentially that means that we are made righteous before God. So we no longer stand condemned. Now we are in a place of righteousness before God. And that happens through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you underline, highlight, circle things in your Bible, I want you to circle that word redemption. Underline that word redemption. That word redemption or to redeem basically means to buy or or buy back. Specifically, it carries with it this idea of paying a ransom for someone. Paying a ransom for someone. And it was typically uh, used in the marketplace. So in in this time, uh, time, if you were to incur uh, a significant amount of debt, if you were to get yourself into financial trouble to where you could not pay your bills anymore, what you would do, the only option you had, your last resort, was to essentially sell yourself into uh, slavery to somebody else. You would, you would go to somebody who was wealthy and say, hey, I'll, I'll be your servant, I'll be your slave, I'll work for you to pay off my debts. So that's what you would do. You would essentially sell yourself into servanthood in order to pay off your debt. Now, now keep in mind, The only thing that put you in that position was having a significant amount of debt, like so much that you couldn't pay it off and probably never work it off. So essentially you were condemning yourself to a lifelong of servanthood of slavery. Now what could happen if somebody loved you enough, if somebody cared for you enough, what they could do was they could buy back your freedom 
And that was called redemption. So somebody would come into the marketplace and they would then pay off all of your debts and then you'd be free. That's the idea of redemption. That's the idea of redemption. And it's often a word that's used throughout our Bibles and it's often used in relation to what God did in the Exodus, that that moment where where God set his people free from Egypt, God points back to that all the time in the Old Testament and says, that's where I redeemed you. That's where I brought redemption and deliverance. What that tells us is that God paid a great cost, a great price to buy his people back. So when it comes to us, what does it mean that, that Christ is our redemption, that we find redemption in him? Who, who, who is paying the ransom for us? Well, Jesus says this in Mark 10, 45. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who pays our ransom. Jesus pays for our redemption, and he pays it with his life. Now, to try to understand this, I want you to think about it. If you have any kind of debt in life, and and statistics will tell us that the average American household has just under $100,000 in debt. So that's a lot of money, right? Like, that's a lot. Typically, we don't just have that lying around when we're like, ooh, I'll I'll just pay off all my debt today. That's what I'll do. I'll go home and I'll pay off all my debt because I have this crazy amount of money just sitting there, right? Like, nobody, we we don't don't have that, for most of us at least. Most of us, maybe you're just blessed by that, praise God for that. But we, most I don't have that. Let me just speak for myself. I don't have that ability to just go and just pay off every amount of debt, especially that amount of money. Now, that's a lot, but, it, you know, it could still be overcome. You know, you do the Dave Ramsey method. You, you pay it off. You debt snowball this thing. You could get there, right? You could get there. Now, now try to imagine if that debt was just the, the biggest number you could ever think of. My kids who are learning to count and add and subtract in first, and first grade and kindergarten is what they're in, the two older ones. Uh, they're, they're constantly like, hey, Dad, what, what's, what's 90, 100, 80, 52? Like, they're just saying numbers plus, you know, and then another number. I'm like, I don't even know what you're saying. Those aren't real numbers. But in their minds, they're just trying to think of the biggest number. So try to think of the biggest number. Like, that's, that's what our debt is like to God. That's what our sin debt has brought us before God. We have this enormous, massive amount of debt that you and I could never pay off. We could never pay that off. And that's why the Bible speaks of us as being slaves to our sin. This is where that idea comes from. We have built up such an amount of debt that all we have, all we can give is is just to be slaves to our sin. It rules over us. It controls us. That's all we have. We could never pay that debt off. And here comes Jesus. And he pays the ransom. And he pays it with his life. He pays our debt debt that we never could pay. He pays it with his life, with his death, with his resurrection, with shedding his blood on the cross for us. This is what 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says. It says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, right? So we're redeemed, and it's not like what we think. We can't just pay money to set ourselves free, right? Like we can't bring something. This is the idea that we can't bring something to God and say, here, God, I'm paying off my debt of sin. That's not how it works. We can't do it. So we're redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless Church, this is, this is why we sing about the blood, right? 
Like that's, I mean, from the outside, you're a non, non-believer coming into a church and they're singing about blood, nothing but the blood, right? Like that's just weird, right? That's weird. But when we, when we look at it from this perspective of what that blood does for us, it pays our debt. It pays our ransom. Jesus shed his blood to pay the price for our sins. That's why there's nothing but the blood of Jesus, church. That's why we sing about the blood. That's why we praise Jesus for his death. In his death, he pays the price. Our third thing about Jesus' death here, Jesus died to take on the penalty for our sins. Not only does he pay the price, he takes on the penalty. He takes on the penalty. Look, look again at, at Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So not only does Jesus pay the price as our redeemer, but Jesus also bears the penalty for our sins. And if you remember what we talked about last week, what's the penalty that we've stored up for our sins? It's God's wrath. This is what Romans 1.18 says. Not only do we stand condemned, our penalty, what is coming down from God to us because of our sins is God's wrath. That's the penalty. That's our punishment, is receiving an eternity worth of God's wrath. Again, if we don't have our sins taken care of, if we don't have salvation, if we don't have somebody take care of us, that's our fate. We stand condemned. And the result of that condemnation is God's wrath. And it says here that Jesus takes care of us. Can we put verse 25 back up there, Chris? So verse 25 says, God presented him as the mercy seat. Now that word translated mercy seat in my translation, so I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, uh, that, that phrase right there, the mercy seat, it's a word that, that has a lot of trouble being translated because it's not a common word. So the New Testament is written in Greek, and that Greek word that's, that's used there is not common at all. So it's given translators uh, fits trying to come up, well, what does that word actually mean? So maybe in your version it says something like a sacrifice of atonement or, or, or means of forgiveness, or in a lot of translations, if you're reading from like the ESV, which is a popular translation, it, it might say propitiation. Now look, I don't know about y'all, but I'm not going around ever using the word propitiation in my everyday language. I'm, I'm usually not using the phrase, the mercy seat, any, in like I can't, like I don't even know uh, the last time I, I used it. Probably when I was reading this in another sermon, right? Like, uh, how, what, is it, what are we talking about here? All right, so let, let's spend a, a minute here, because again, this, this is not a, a common idea, but, it, but it's significant for what Jesus does for us. So regardless of how your translation translates that, that phrase, mercy seat, atonement, forgiveness or propitiation, they, they all carry similar ideas of what's happening, of what Jesus is doing for us. So the mercy seat, uh, we'll take it from there, the, the mercy seat refers back to, the, back to the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to create what he called the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Covenant housed, among other things, like the, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments that God actually wrote for his people. They stored that, and then they, they put this lid on it, and then on top of the lid, there was the, these angels that were crafted out of gold, and that was called the mercy seat. And what we're told in the Old Testament is that God's presence dwelt right there on the mercy seat. So they, uh, in order, you know, because you can't just 
you know, you just walk in to God's presence in the Old Testament or else you'd fall dead on your face because, again, you're, you're condemned with your sins. You're walking in as a guilty person in the perfect presence of God. Boom, you're dead. All right, so what they did was, was God had them kind of wall off this area within the tabernacle and then later within the temple, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And there were these big, thick curtains that, that blocked this section off. And in, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And there was one time a year that the high priest was able. He was the only person that could do it. He, and he could only do it one time a year. He could come into that place, into the Holy of Holies, into right before the mercy seat. And he would do this on the Day of Atonement. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16. And he does this on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And this is the day that God set aside for, for the, the people to make a sacrifice to atone for or pay the price for their sins that they had committed for that year. So what they did, one of the, part of the process was they would, they would take a goat, and the high priest would, would kill that goat, and then he would take the blood of that goat, and he would, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And again, I know that, that's like, what, what's going on there? What's, remember, the penalty for, for, for sins is death. Something has to die to pay for sins. It's either, it's either us or somebody else or something else. In this moment, for God's people to temporarily take care of their sins, it was a goat. So they would take that, and they would, they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and that satisfied the payment for their sins. That satisfied the wrath that God had stored up for their sins in that moment. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. He satisfies God's wrath. That's what that word propitiation means. If that's the word that's in your translation, propitiation means to satisfy or appease the wrath of God. To take care of the wrath of God. All right, because look, God's, God's got to deal with sin, right? God's perfect and holy, and he's just. If God does not deal with sins, if he's just like, you know what? No big deal. We're just going to forget about it. Forget it ever happened. No big deal. I'm cool. He's not just. And we all know that, right? Like when something bad happens, if somebody does something evil and wicked, there needs to be some sort of punishment. Like we all know that. There's something just innate within us that goes, no, that's wrong. You can't just forget about that. Like somebody's got to pay. And again, it's either, it's either us or somebody else. Either we pay the penalty of God's wrath, or somebody does it for us. And what this passage in Romans chapter 3 tells us is that Jesus does that. He is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation. He provides the way of forgiveness, and he does it through his death. So he pays the price. He takes on the penalty. Jesus on the cross becomes our perfect substitute, right? Like, we're the ones that deserve all of that. We're the ones that deserve to die. We're the ones that deserve the, the full force of God's wrath. And yet Jesus stands in our place. He is the perfect substitute. He is the perfect sacrifice. Isaiah 53 summarizes it this way. Speaking of Jesus, prophesying about what Jesus would do hundreds of years before he did it. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 says this. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This is what Jesus has done for us. He took our place. He died the death. He took on the price and the penalty and the punishment 
that we deserve. Jesus brings salvation through his death. Number two, number two, Jesus saves us through his resurrection. So Jesus saves us through his death, and Jesus saves us through his resurrection. Look, the death of Jesus accomplishes a great deal, right? I told you we could spend hours talking about all that Jesus does and accomplishes through his substitutionary death on the cross, right? Like, it's incredible. It's amazing all that happens in that moment. But all that he did, all that he accomplished in that moment, if Jesus were to have stayed dead, it would have ultimately meant nothing. It would ultimately have meant nothing if he didn't rise from the dead. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If Christ did not walk out of that tomb, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we are still in our sins. We're still in our sins. Why is this? Why is that the case? Well, first, I just want to make mention that the cross, I think sometimes it's often displayed this way, that, that Jesus' death on the cross seems like a defeat, right? It seems like we're kind of given this picture of Jesus dies on the cross on Good Friday 2,000 years ago, and Satan's like dancing on his tomb, right? That's my way of dancing, so pray for me. He's just dancing on his tomb, right? He's just like, ah, I got you, I got you, Jesus. No, that, that's, not, that's not at all what happens. Jesus' death is not defeat. It's victory, Jesus is, in his death, Jesus wins the victory. The cross was victory, and the resurrection is victory proclaimed. It's victory solidified. It's victory demonstrated. This is what, what Colossians chapter 2 says about Jesus on the cross, just to, to give us a clear picture of what's going on here. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says this. He, Jesus, erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. So that's the idea that we just talked about. Jesus takes away our debt of sin that we owe. He's taken that away because of the cross. Nailing it to the cross through his death, he does that. Cool, we got that. We just talked about that. Now verse 15. In his death, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. That, that phrase, the rulers and authorities, that, that's speaking about Satan and all of his wickedness and sin and his agents in the world. That's what that's talking about. In his death, Jesus wins the victory over them. That happens in his death. And then the resurrection proclaims that victory. It solidifies that victory. Makes that victory real. That's what the resurrection does. So in the resurrection, Christ wins the victory over over all power, over all evil, over all sin. He now has all the power and authority. This is the, the picture that we're given in Scripture. When Jesus rises from the dead, God takes him and sits him in a place of authority over everything, right? So this is what Ephesians chapter 1 says about it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, he says, it says this, He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. That's what happens as a result of the resurrection. 
Jesus now has full power and authority over everything, including our sin, including Satan and just the, the little smidge of power that he has. Jesus rules over, over all of that. So in the resurrection, Jesus saves us from the power of sin. And we're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks, so stay with us here. But, but Jesus saves us from the power of sin. No longer are we living under the power of sin. No longer are we slaves to our sin. No longer are we dead in our sins. That's what the idea of Christ making us alive. That's what that means. Christ makes us alive in him, and we no longer have to live in our sin. We no longer are condemned to just chase after and follow our sin anymore. We've been saved from that power. Now we follow Jesus. Now we follow him. Now we live in his power. In the resurrection, Jesus also saves us from the effects of sin. Jesus, in the resurrection, Jesus reverses the curse of sin. Remember, sin brings death. That's the curse that's over us. Sin brings death. We are condemned to die. But in the resurrection, Christ brings life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. What our sin earns us, what we deserve from our sins, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. Sin brings death, but Jesus, through his resurrection, brings life. And the promise of God is that we will live eternally with him in complete perfection. He's going to restore everything. He's going to make it all new. He's going to make it all right. That's the promise of God. That's what Jesus does in the resurrection. Saves us from the effects of sin. So where sin brought death, Jesus brings life. So Jesus saves us through his death. He saves us through his resurrection. And then our third point, and we'll end here, is Jesus saves us through faith. Jesus saves us through faith. Let's go back to, to Romans verse 25. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith. Through faith. That forgiveness, that propitiation, that, that mercy seat, what Jesus does on the cross is applied to us through faith. Other parts of scripture echo this. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for you are saved by grace through faith. Through faith. Faith is how God brings salvation. It's how he applies salvation. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from work so that no one can boast. So faith is not something that we get to pat ourselves on the back like, oh, good job, Travis, having faith. Way to go, buddy. That's not what that says. Even the faith that we respond to God with comes as a gift from him. He provides us with the faith. That's what that tells us there. So salvation, again, is applied through faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That idea of believing in Jesus, the same idea of putting our faith in him, is the same idea there. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. So again, how is salvation applied? It's applied through faith. That is our response. How do we respond to Jesus's death on the cross, to his resurrection, to his uh, providing salvation for us, we respond with repentance and faith. 
Let's talk about repentance first. So repentance is an idea that we talk a lot about. Repentance, just in its base meaning, means to change. It means to turn. So it means to to have this this change of mind that results in a change of will or a change in action. That's what repentance means. So the first step of turning to Jesus for salvation is to turn from our sin. It's to turn away from our sin and back to Jesus. It's this, this... this way uh, of demonstrating, Jesus, I, I'm saying that, that I'm done with this life of sin. I'm turning away from my sin. I'm leaving that alone. I'm, I'm, I'm not going back that way, right? I, I'm, I'm leaving that, and I'm coming to you. That's repentance. And so to truly repent, the first step is we have to, we have to see our sin for what it really is. We have to see our sin for what it really is. I think too often we, we, we have this idea, I know I do at times, that our sin, eh, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. I'm the only one that's really, you know, I'm the only one that knows about myself. I'm the only one. You know, what's my pride really affecting? What's my anger really affecting? Sure, I have some outbursts sometimes. What does it, you know, what's my, what's my lust really affecting? What's, what's my, my greed, my, my desire for materialism really affecting? That's ah, just, you know, that's just, you know, that's me and my personality. Like, we blame our sin on just so many things. We, we try to minimize our sin as much as possible. But we need, to, we need to sit with this for a minute. Our sin is evil and wicked and destructive. And no matter how, how little we think it is or how much we only think it affects us, so what's the big deal? That sin brings death. Our sin is so horrible and awful and gross, and wicked, and evil, that it required God himself dying on a cross for it. It required Jesus dying in the most horrible, humiliating, and painful way possible to pay for that sin. Our sin is really bad, y'all. It's really bad. John Stott says this. Um, he's pastor, theologian. Um, has this incredible book. If you ever want to read something more about what Jesus does on the cross, he has this awesome book, The Cross of Christ. Phenomenal. Uh, he says this uh, about the cross. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. This is the first step in repentance. It's seeing that, that Jesus was on that cross because of my sin, because of your sin. The cross is not just something done for us, it's something done by us. We need to understand and see our sin for what it really is and how horrible and wicked and evil it is and that that sin sent God himself to the cross. So we have to see our sin for what it really is and then, and then we have to own it. We have to own it. And, you know, we talked about this last week. That, that, that's difficult for us. Like, we don't, we don't enjoy taking responsibility for our sins. We like to blame other people. We like to, fl- to deflect. We like to be defensive. We don't like to own our sin. But if we're going to truly repent, we have to see our sin for how evil and wicked and awful it is. And then we have to say, yeah, that's me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. We have to confess that we're a sinner. We have to agree with God's assessment of us. 
We have to say, yes, God, you're right. I am a sinner. And because of that, yes, I do stand condemned. And yes, I do deserve your wrath. And yes, I do deserve to be sentenced to hell for all of eternity. That's the first step in repentance. We have to see our sin for what it is, and we have to own that. We have to agree with God about our sin. And that's when we can repent. That's when we can finally go, you know what, Jesus? I see my sin. I know that I'm a sinner. And because of that, I know I can't save myself. And when we get to that point, and that's, when, that's where repentance comes in. When we own our sin and we feel the weight of that and we see, man, I can't, I can't take care of that debt. I can't do anything about that. Jesus, you, you gotta do something about that because I can't. That's what brings us to repentance. That's what brings us to the response that Jesus calls for. So again, it's, it's not just a, a turning from sin to something else. It's a turning from sin to Jesus. It's going back to Genesis 1. It's going back to saying, you know what, Jesus? I, I, I've tried it my way. I lived for sin. I chased after all of these things that the world had to offer, and, it, and it's amounted to nothing. It's amounted to emptiness and brokenness and pain and frustration and disappointment in my life. I'm done with that, and I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to live under your authority. I'm coming back to live in dependence upon you the way that you made me. That's what repentance is. It's turning from sin and turning to Jesus. And then the second part of that is faith. And faith simply is, is reliance. It's trust. It's trusting not in myself to save. It's trusting in, in Jesus to save us. It's trusting in him to provide salvation. It's trusting in him to do what only he can do. Again, it's coming back to, to Genesis 1. It's saying that Jesus, I, I, I'm done with this old way of living and now, now I'm coming back to you. I'm putting my faith and my trust back in you, in your word, in your goodness, and in your grace. That's what it means to repent and put our faith in Jesus. And when we do that, when we do that, Jesus applies salvation to us. When we repent and turn to him in faith, that all that stuff that he did on the cross and in the resurrection gets applied to us. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about the implications of doing that. What happens after that point? What happens when we put our faith in Jesus and he saves us? So again, hang with us, come, come back to that. But this is our response. We feel the weight of our sin. We see we have no hope beyond Jesus. We're to repent and turn to him in faith. Now, if you're here and, and you've never done that, you'd say, you know, Travis, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I, 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 I'm with you that I see my sin I see that I'm a sinner. I see that I need salvation and that I can't do it myself. What, what do I do now? It's exactly this. You turn to Jesus in faith. You say, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. I'm putting my faith in you. In a moment, we're gonna, we're gonna pray. The band's gonna come back up here and lead us in a time of worship and we're gonna do what we do every single Sunday and that, that's step into a time of worship and communion. And this is a time just for the believers in the room. So if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus, this time of communion, it's not for you, but, but I want you to hear that, that today it, it could be. It can't be. I want you to hear that God loves you. He loves you so much that he died on the cross for you. He rose from the dead for you. He wants to bring salvation to you.
all we have to do is turn to him in faith and say, Jesus, I'm done. I'm done with this, and I'm coming to you. And if you want to do that today, I'll be hanging in the back. I'd love to talk with you. Anybody here would love to talk with you about that. There's no magic formula. There's no magic words to say. It's a, it's a matter of the heart, right? As Romans 10 tells us, it's a matter of, of the heart confessing these things to be true, that you truly believe them, and you're turning to him in faith. So just tell Jesus that. And you can come to the table as a son or daughter of Jesus Christ, and you can take and you can eat and you can celebrate in the salvation that he alone provides. Christian in the room, if you're here and you have put your faith in Jesus, I think it's a good time for us to remember that that repentance is not just a one-time thing. We don't just repent that one time and then we're good. We never get we never got to repent again. That doesn't mean that we always have to you know keep coming to God for salvation. Know that that salvation happens once for all time. But repentance is this daily action of us seeing our sin seeing how we've strayed, seeing how we've gone back to our old ways and saying, Jesus, I want to I come back to you. I want to renew my faith and my trust in you in this moment. So Christian in the room, I want to encourage you to spend this time as we pray and as, as the band plays. Maybe you need to spend some time in prayer. Maybe you spend some time in, in repentance. Maybe, maybe you have strayed. Maybe you have turned away from God and you, you've gone back to your old way of living. Well, the good news of Scripture, the good news of God's Word is that we can always turn to Him in repentance. We can always come and approach and draw near and come to the throne of grace in our time of need. Our God is always there with open arms, ready to receive us in love and in grace and mercy. Let's turn back to Him. And then as you're ready, as, you, as you're prepared, and you can go to the table on either side, you can, you can take the cup, you can take the bread, and, and by taking and eating and drinking, we remember and we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. This is exactly what he tells us to do the night that he started this moment, the, the Lord's Supper, communion, and called us to do it on a regular basis. He tells his disciples that, that he's going to the cross. As he breaks the bread and pours out the wine, he tells them his body is about to be broken, his blood is about to be shed. As for them, it's for their sins, it's for the sins of the world. So every time we eat, every time we drink, every time we come to the table, we remember and we celebrate and we worship the salvation that Jesus alone provides. So as you're ready, you go to the table and we come back and let's, let's worship our good God and Savior. Let me pray for us. Jesus, Lord, I thank you for your salvation. I thank you for, Lord, providing a way for our sins to be taken care of. Lord, we have no hope without you. Lord, we rightly stand condemned. We rightly deserve wrath and punishment and hell forever, Jesus. Thank you for taking our place. Thank you for dying the death that we deserve, Lord. Thank you for paying the price, for, for bearing the penalty. Lord, I pray that we, every day, Lord, remember what you've done for us, what you alone have done for us, Jesus. And the world comes calling when, when that that serpent of old comes trying to, to lead us astray, to get us to doubt and, and not believe and not trust in you, Jesus. We remember 
what you've done. Remember who you are. We remember the love that you have for us, Lord. Although what this moment tells us is, is that in our sin, we, we are far worse than we could ever imagine, but at the same time, we are far more loved than we ever hoped we could believe, Lord. I thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us, Jesus. We worship you today, Lord, our sacrificial lamb, our risen Savior, Jesus. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. In your name we pray. Amen.